You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Our sermon text this morning is just two verses from Romans chapter 8. And it is packed with significance for the people of God. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is God's word. Please be seated. Is it possible? Is it possible? For a Christian, a Christian who has once been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, is it possible for that Christian to once again come under the condemnation of God? That is the question taken up for us in our text this morning. As we turn our attention to verses 33 and 34 of Romans chapter 8, it is important for us to note that we find ourselves at the end of of an entire chapter, an entire chapter that deals almost entirely with the assurance of the Christian. As it's been said, Paul begins Romans chapter 8 by declaring, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He begins the chapter that way and he ends the chapter by saying there is therefore now no separation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation and there is no separation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 is one giant statement regarding the utter security of those for whom Christ died. Yes, that is my son. Romans chapter 8 is one giant statement regarding the utter security of those for whom Christ died. Security for those who have placed their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, in other words, is the crescendo of Christian confidence. It's a crescendo and it's almost lyrical too. It's beautiful what Paul strings together in these verses, particularly in verses 31 to 39, Paul uses emotive and lyrical prose to articulate his own gratitude for the assurance he has in Christ. Before we go any further, I've been doing this long enough to know that some of you are here And you have absolutely no interest in having some sort of religious experience 
with the risen Christ. I, I realize that. And some of you may be here feeling like you're a bit held hostage by an Easter brunch. Someone promised you an Easter brunch and some family time if you would just come to Easter service with them. I realize that was a little shady of them to do that. But here, you're here now. And you have no intentions. Wherever you are in the spectrum, you don't have intentions of having any sort of experience with the risen Christ. Is he even historical? Is it even real? Don't Christians just whip themselves up in a frenzy every year? Well, our prayer for you, if you're anywhere on that spectrum, our prayer for you this morning is that you would hear the pure gospel of Jesus Christ from Romans chapter 8. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ, unbound, unadorned by human wisdom or politics or partisan ideas or Western culture that you would hear the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ came, Christ died, and Christ was raised for sinners. And that you this morning, though you had no intentions of having any encounter with Christ, you would come face to face with the risen Christ this morning. For others of you who come already of claiming allegiance to Christ, you come as a believer, those who are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that we too would come face to face again with the risen Christ, convinced all the more that he is who he says he is. And as a result, we are who he says we are. In short, our hope for this Sunday morning and for all of life is that we together would celebrate the glory of God. Are you looking for something to celebrate? Celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now then we turn our attention to verses 33 and 34 of Romans chapter 8. I've entitled this sermon, The Heavenly Courtroom and the Session of Christ. The Heavenly Courtroom and the Session of Christ. And you'll know why I've entitled it The Heavenly Courtroom right off of the bat as we read verse 33 again. Notice the language of Paul in verse 33. Paul writes... Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge? This is legal language that Paul is employing at this part of his epistle to the Romans. You'll notice, starting back all the way in verse 31, Paul begins asking a series of rhetorical questions. A series of rhetorical questions, all of which have the same answer. Like a lawyer who is passionately pleading his case before a jury, Paul takes up these rhetorical questions and he hurls them at anyone who will dare to answer them. In verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's not for us, there's a whole lot that can be against us. 
But Paul, again, as a lawyer, addresses the jury. If God is for us, who should be against us? Then he says in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Same rhetorical answer, no one. And again in verse 34, who is to condemn? No one. And finally, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, same answer, no one. All of these questions, as John Stott writes, Paul hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anyone and everyone in heaven, on earth, or in hell to answer them, to deny the truth which they contain, but there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people of God whom he has justified. No charge against God's elect. No condemnation for those whom he has justified. Nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Well, this is quite a claim, isn't it? I mean, this is the ultimate of mic drops. If there were a mic drop in the first century, this is quite a claim. So where does Paul go to provide grounds for such a claim? Well, Paul has already tipped his hand in verse 33, hasn't he? Read it carefully again. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's what? Elect. As Paul enters the heavenly courtroom to provide grounds for his claim that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God, He uses the strongest possible language to make his case, as you would as a good attorney. And so he employs a specific Greek word, who shall separate us or who shall bring any charge against God's elect, eklektos in the Greek, the chosen by God. Notice that Paul doesn't say, who shall bring any charge against those who have made a decision for Jesus? Now, it's certainly vital and important to make a decision and even necessary to make a decision for Jesus. But that's not where Paul goes. Paul doesn't lay his claim for Christian assurance at the feet of our decision. But instead, Paul lays his claim for Christian assurance at the feet of God's decision. The chosen of God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And Paul again enters this heavenly courtroom to provide an airtight case for Christian security. And he begins by describing the Christian as God's elect. I find deep comfort in this. I don't know about you, but from day to day, I go in and out of feeling particularly Christian. Something can happen to me five minutes after an Easter sermon that causes me to think or act un 
unbecoming of a Christian, let alone a pastor. So do I source my assurance in how I'm feeling about my belief in Jesus? Paul doesn't think so. Paul says, you you source your assurance at the feet of God's decision. And so he describes the Christian as the elect, the chosen. But there's more to be said. In verse 34, before judge and jury, Paul continues to lay the groundwork for Christian security. He goes on, look at verse 34. Who is to condemn more legal language? Meaning, who is to pronounce a guilty verdict on a Christian? Who is to pronounce a guilty verdict? Will Satan come? Well, you know he'll try. He's known as the accuser of the brethren, Satan is. Who is to condemn? Is it Satan? Will the Christian's own conscience condemn them? What about the words of others? Will the words of others condemn us before God? Who is to condemn, Paul asks. He goes on in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is raised. He is at the right hand of the Father, or right hand of God, and is indeed making intercession for us. Paul gives four grounds, beloved, four grounds which testify to the fact that no guilty verdict will ever come down upon a Christian in the courtroom of heaven ever. And these four grounds will provide the structure of the remainder of our sermon this morning. First, listen, there will be no charge against the Christian and no condemnation because Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's number one. There will be no condemnation for the Christian, Paul says, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Earlier in Romans chapter 8, you might remember Paul says that by God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning that at the cross, the judge of the entire cosmos, the judge of the universe brought down upon his own son a decisive verdict. And the verdict was this. At Good Friday, at Calvary, with Christ on the cross, here is the verdict from the judge of the universe. I, the creator and judge of the entire cosmos, find the defendant, Jesus of Nazareth, guilty on all accounts. That was the verdict on Good Friday. Guilty. Punishable by death. Yes, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, condemned Jesus to die. But listen, behind and above Pilate's order was God's own decree to execute judgment upon his son. Pilate was doing God's bidding. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
Another way to translate that, it, it pleased the Lord to crush the son. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 verse 34 that there cannot be any condemnation for those who are in Christ because Christ was already condemned by the righteous judge. You can't burn this forest down. It's already been burned. It's already scorched earth. Christ already consumed the fiery wrath of the Father. He was already proclaimed as guilty. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But Paul's not done. That's grounds one. Christ died. He's not done. Paul goes on in verse 34. More than that, Paul says, who was raised. And that's the second grounds for the Christian's assurance and security. Christ was raised. Listen, the old Adam, the old Adam was nailed to the cross, guilty as charged. But now in the glorious resurrection, again on the first day of the week, 2,000 years ago, emerges now for the first time in history, a new humanity. The old Adam is nailed to the cross, but three days later, out of the tomb comes a new Adam, a new representative, a new humanity. More than that, Christ was raised. Christ goes to the cross as a sacrificial lamb. And he's silent before his shearers. He's silent before his executioners. He answered them not a word. He goes before Pilate like a lamb, but he comes out of the tomb like a lion. Michael Byrd writes this, we must remember that the cross and the resurrection form an indissoluble unity. The cross without the resurrection at best is a martyrdom. And at worst, it's a wrongly calculated disaster. But together... The cross and the resurrection constitute the fulcrum on which God's intention to recapture the world for himself is launched and enacted. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the righteous anger of God against sin, guilty as charged, though he did nothing to deserve it. But now in the resurrection, Christ triumphs over all things which threaten to condemn us, namely sin and death. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, the resurrected one, shall all be made alive. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. But Paul's not done. He's not done as he stands before the jury, the world who is watching this courtroom of God's gospel. He goes on. 
in verse 34, who is at the right hand of God. To say that Jesus is at the right hand of God is to say that Jesus sits in the seat of supreme power and dominion over all things everywhere. To sit at the right hand of a king is to sit in the place of prominence and power and dominion. And Paul knows what he's doing here. Paul is a Jewish scholar. He's quoting directly from Psalm 110 verse 1. When he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that is a direct quote from Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's interesting to note that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. And it's Jesus' favorite psalm to speak of himself from. And here in Romans chapter 34, or rather chapter 8, verse 34, Paul tells us that after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended where he is right now seated at the right hand of God. Paul would make this claim even more emphatic in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read that text to you. Paul writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. Can Paul, Paul is using all words that he can think of to describe the place of authority that Christ is seated right now. And so who is to condemn is the question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn if Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of God, exercising all rule and authority and power and dominion? Will Satan object? To God's work? Will you? Will your conscience object? Paul says, you can try, but you're not seated at the right hand of God. You don't have all power and authority. Satan certainly doesn't have all power and authority to to declare over your life condemned or not. Who has the power? Paul says, Christ does. Full stop. Like the woman who was caught in adultery. Do you remember that story? She's caught in the act. Apparently the man is let go. She's caught in the act. She's dragged before Jesus, the one who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. She's dragged before him, thrown in front of him, while she's gathered around with men holding stones to crush her skull. And like the woman caught in adultery, Christ says to every Christian, Where are your accusers? after they drop their stones and walk away. 
Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you to which we must reply like the woman caught in adultery? No one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So whose words do you trust? And yet Paul's not finished. Not only has Christ died, more than that was raised. Not only is he at the right hand of God, but finally, our final grounds for Christian assurance, Paul says that Christ is indeed interceding for us. So he's not just seated in all power and authority. He's doing something as he's seated. And since the beginning of April here at Roots, we have been tracking the prayers of Christ in his passion. From the high priestly prayer in John 17 to Christ's prayers from the cross on Good Friday, we have witnessed remarkable insight into the heart of God for sinners. In his passion, Jesus prayed for our salvation. In his passion, he prayed for our sanctification. He prayed for our unity. He prayed for our forgiveness. These were his prayers while he was here. But beloved, did you know that Jesus is right now praying in this very moment? Paul the apostle says that he is indeed making intercession for his elect. That word interceding comes with it, this idea of Christ's ongoing role as priest. Which means he is still mediating. That's what the role of the priest would do. He would mediate the people to God and God to the people. He would go between, he'd hold the rope, so to speak. That's what a priest would do. And so Christ is right now in a priestly role, making intercession, making mediation. He is advocating. That's another way to say that word. He's advocating for Christians. Another way to describe it is Jesus right now is pleading for you. He's making his case in the courtroom of heaven. He's seated. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 and 25 say this, the former priests were many in number because they were present, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, verse 24, he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He continues forever. Consequently, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Not just on an Easter weekend. He's able to save for all of eternity those who draw near to God through him. Why, Paul? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For centuries, for centuries, the church has known this ongoing intercession of Jesus at the right hand of God as the session of Christ. Christ is in session. As another writes, when, when we say, quote, when we say that Congress is in session, 
we mean that our representatives are assembled and in their seats. They're seated, ready to transact the business of the United States. So when Congress is in session or when a courtroom is in session, the judge would say, you may be seated. This court is in session. And it means that the official proceedings of that official gathering has begun. And now in a similar way, Jesus Christ is officially seated in session at the right hand of God, ready to transact the business of his people. He represents us to God and he is in session. And his role, again, is to represent us to the Father. He pleads to the Father. He reminds the Father, my blood is on them. My blood is on them. And he never takes a break. You've heard in, I just, in the movies, right? This court is in recess, right? Or adjourned. Never in the session of Christ. Is there an adjournment or a recess or a coffee break? There is only the session of Christ. This means that right now, in this moment, right now, on behalf of the Christian, Jesus is rejecting any and all claims brought against the ones for whom he died. What is the new charge against Dylan Budd this week? Well, Dylan Budd continues to wane in his affection for Jesus. He has sinned in his thoughts and in his deeds. He is a sinner. What does the advocate say? What does the intercessor say to the judge? This is what he says. Charges dismissed on account of my own blood. To try him again would be double jeopardy. I've already been crucified. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who is at the right hand of God. More than that, who is interceding in session. It doesn't even make it into the courtroom. It's rejected at first glance on account of the merits of Christ alone. Christ is in session continually. Which is why you and I have a spiritual heartbeat right now. If you're wondering why you have not fallen away, it is not because you're better. It's not because I'm better. It's because Christ is in session. This is the crescendo of Christian confidence. So who is to condemn? So just in in a moment, just in silence right now, I've done a lot of talking. Just think in your mind, who is to condemn you right now? Romans 8, 33 and 34 is your response to that condemnation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He already died. The verdict guilty already laid on him. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is right now interceding for us. So is it possible for a Christian, one who has been justified by the blood of Christ, to come under condemnation again? Certainly not. In fact, why don't you answer that? Certainly not. I'm going to ask the question. You respond, certainly not, if you agree. Is it possible for a Christian, one who has been justified by the blood of Christ, to come under condemnation again? Certainly not. As I was thinking how to end a sermon like this, where we're just beholding the glories of our assurance in Christ, I fell flat at trying to find an application. And I think the reason I fell flat is because we're right in the middle of worship. That's what Paul's doing at the end of Romans 8. He's worshiping. This is a doxology. This is lyrical. It's almost musical. It's beautiful. And so I thought this would be an appropriate way to finish our sermon this morning. If you would grab your Bibles and stand to your feet, we're going to read verses 31 to 39. I'm going to read this out loud. Read it in your hearts. Believe it by grace. Worship as you read it. Verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's holy word.